there was a time, believe it or not, that I was a young adults pastor. And uh, my friend and I remember that time because that's when they still thought the earth was flat. Yes, I was a young adults pastor. And after about pastoring this group of uh, eclectic individuals for uh, approximately two years, I found myself navigating two groups of individuals. Guard, whom they referred to themselves as the college and careers. Remember that? You probably don't. That's okay. You're forgiven. And the new guard, who at that time were well, who, who we now uh, refer to, or social, so, sociologists refer to as Gen X, the Kurt Cobain grungy types who motto was, I don't need an umbrella when it rains. It works good for me. I had to carefully navigate these two merging groups of individuals, and I often thought to myself, how am I going to do this? Because they're like oil and water. Well, lo and behold, one thing all of them agreed on and all of them enjoyed was food. So Christmas was coming up, and I thought, you know what? We're not too old to, and, and too kind of, well, not too old. We're, we're not too young and, and old-minded in that respect to have a Christmas banquet. So let's have a Christmas banquet. And I thought, this would be great. It would be food. It would be fun. It would be fellowship, music, Charlie Brown VHS. Dating myself. Um, and we had our banquet, and everybody was mixing and laughing and having fun and hanging out and singing and goofing off. And we even had a stranger in our midst. I, I'll call him the guy. Now, the guy was a really happy-go-lucky kind of guy. He fit in. He mixed in, you know, in such a way that you would have thought that he had been part of the group forever. And he talked to everyone as if he knew them. And everybody talked to him as if they knew him. So naturally, standing back, I saw the guy, the guy, the guy everywhere. He was everywhere. And he was eating, I'll tell you. He seemed, he just seemed so much at home. But, but he did have an issue. And really, there was only one tangible issue that the guy had. He smelled Really, really, really bad. So bad that whenever he left, people noticed. Because I could tell. And when I got talking to him, it was, it took everything not to go, dude. So who's the guy? Well, none of us really knew because we were all looking at each other as if, well, you know the guy, right? Oh, I thought you knew the guy. No. Don't you know the guy? No. Well, is the guy with her? No. Well, who's the guy with? Who's the guy? So finally, I went up to the guy and I said, hi, I'm, uh, I'm Pastor Mark. I'm, you know, young adults pastor here and who are you? And he kind of said something, and I noticed that he started getting a little, I don't know if it was like evasive, or um, well, he was, he was kind of laughing and looking around and, and seeing if he could enter into some other conversation. 
So I, I kept on pressing. I said, well, like, do you know anybody here? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, so, like, who invited you? And he would avoid the question. And he started getting really twitchy and slippery. And, and I started getting very not Jesus-like. So my questions resulted in his pushback. And people started to come over as if to kind of join with me. And it's like, yeah, hey, who are you? What, what, what are you? And I think the, 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 really the elephant question in the room is, why do you smell like this? I'm not sure what happened after that. It was, it was quite surreal. But as much as I can remember, in looking back, I can still picture him doing this. And he had a look on his face. It wasn't an angry, offensive look. It's a look that stays with me because he left with his big parka jacket on, never came back, never saw him, never heard from him again. And the episode puzzled me, troubled me, almost to the point where I would say that there are times when it comes back to haunt me. You see, the writer of Hebrews says, never neglect to show hospitality individuals because some have entertained angels without even being aware. So I guess I'll never know until I get to heaven. But what I do know is, I think it's safe to say that in that context, we violated everything that I'm going to be addressing today. So, with that happy introduction, it's fair to say that you all know what we'll be speaking about today, addressing, um, and thank you so much, Karen, poor Karen. Uh, there were two chapters, like it ended up being close to maybe 80 verses, and I thought, you know what, like if I read the entire, or have the entire story read, you're going to probably stone me or walk out, or do something that you might regret, usually involving some form of affliction of pain upon me. So Karen, this morning, read Peter's summary of the story that I will be jumping back in and out of this morning. So please be patient as we kind of unpack this. It's not, um, this is not just kind of like a paint-by-number kind of message. Now, we have been in a series entitled Ecclesia, Rediscovering Spirit Form Community, and I forgot my pointer again. Bye, golly. Thank you, Jennifer. Because um, we've been rediscovering what it means to be a community allegiant to Jesus but formed by his spirit to be a unique expression of what Jesus wants his church to be in these end days. And it really has been a real eye-opening experience as we discover sometimes the discrepancy and the distance between supposedly what Jesus wants his church to be 
and sometimes what we realize it has become. We looked at Christ-centered teaching, and we discovered very quickly that Jesus didn't just talk, he did something. In other words, it wasn't just good news, it was good works. That his message always accompanied, was accompanied by miraculous workings. Powerful. We discovered that fellowship was also something that was much, much more deeper than just sitting at a table with somebody that you like from church and eating and drinking coffee. That it involved a deep sacrificial sharing of what one had in terms of resources, specifically with those who had nothing or had very little. And that the, the, the concept of koinonia went much more deeper than just sharing your food. It was a sharing of your life, your soul. We discovered last week also that prayer, the way the Spirit had formed a culture of prayer in the early church, was more than the just, now I lay me down to sleep and pray the Lord, my soul, to keep kind of prayer. Just, you know, me and Jesus, and I hope everything's okay. Forget about everything else. But, but that, that prayer when the Spirit of God took over in the lives of the gathered community, it had taken on a very corporate nature that, that everybody, it, w- it was like when there was a need, it was all hands on deck. And we saw last week just the incredible power of what God could do when the community came together, obviously energized, vitalized by the Holy Spirit and prayed in unity for God's purposes and for needs that are real. Today we're talking about the breaking of bread. Now, this little phrase has, has come to mean a lot of things for individuals. Um, and I think, in essence, to some degree, we file, find ourselves filing on either one side of its true and expanded meaning, and that is something we need to, to address. In a spirit-formed community, the concept of the breaking of bread is representative of our communion with God through Christ and our community with others. And I think the cross, if I could force the issue this morning, the cross is a beautiful reminder that we enjoy communion with God because he's the one that initiated it with us. And that communion is deep. It's personal. It's profound. It's life-changing. It is the source of life because it is our life. But the overflow of that communion with God is our community with one another. So much so that Jesus comes out and says, by this will everybody know that you're my disciples, by your love for one another, which is typified in community. But if community only ends, so to speak, on on one side, community with believers, then I think there's a great big element of community that is missing. Today we're going to be looking at that element, 
Now, the challenge for me, and, and I got to be quite, I, I try quite transparent with you this morning, is that I'm I'm wading into air, areas that it's not so much that it's uncomfortable for me, because I'm not uh, an export of the church. In other words, I didn't grow up in church culture. I'm an import. I came out of the very things I want to talk about today. And so I've been going through a number of conversions of having left the world, joining the church, realizing that the church was like Noah's Ark. There was a lot of nastiness on board, but it was the best thing afloat. Only to realize that the nastiness aboard the ark is really stinky. And so I've been kind of trying to attach myself a little rowboat behind the ark and just jump on and off as we we find a landing spot. And um, I'm discovering all over again that the kind of community that I am looking for, that I have been sadly advocating for even in the past couple of years, is very one-sided. It's very one-sided, one side of the cross, so to speak. Please understand that the credibility of our lives and our message that we get to share with others has to begin here. In other words, as Paul said, your living epistles read by all men. If people don't see it here, how likely are they going to believe it when we try to bring it out there? That's a no-brainer. I think we've got that one all figured out. The story in Acts chapter 10 and 11, which I know you're all familiar of, and you've heard the summary once again, repeating myself, but the point is, is that this story is it's the kind of story where there is so much going on and so much detail that it's easy to lose sight of the forest for the trees. But there are undercurrents or little episodes of things happening in this story that speak very, very loudly and importantly to us today when we consider not just our community with fellow Christians and believers, but our community with non-Christians. People who, well, I won't say too much, but we'll, we'll discover those kind of people. People. Well, where are we in this narrative? Um, I'll do a very quick recap, as quickly as I can, because I want to get to the heart of this, which ironically, I, I, I don't think you, I think it's probably fair to say, I'm going to end up someplace where you're thinking, where is he going? How did we get here? But I think you know me long enough, and we've gained at least enough respect for each other and trust that you'll, you'll trust me in this one <laughs> and not run out in the lobby and start your car. Um, there's a Roman soldier living in Caesarea, and I don't want to spend too much time about this because there's a lot of details, a lot of facts. They're important, they're good, but again, they are the many, many trees that would help us to lose sight of the forest. But uh, 
he's referred to as a God-fearer. In other words, he is not your typical Roman centurion. He embraced belief in Israel's God, and that was backed up by the way that he ate, prayed. He prayed to Israel's God, but also he did good deeds. He, he gave. He was favorable towards the Jews. He actually built them a synagogue. And lo and behold, one day, an angel appears to him, which is, you know, something very typical that Luke likes to do. He likes, he really likes messing people up when they're kind of just doing their own thing, you know. So an old man is at an altar of worship, and he sees an angel who tells him, by the way, your wife is going to get pregnant. He interrupts a teenage girl to tell her that she's going to be bearing the Son of God. And now this angel, again, an angel, shows up and tells a Roman centurion who represents the oppressors, the people in charge, the menace, the hated, the repulsed and reviled, cruel taskmasters of Israel, angel shows up to him and says, listen, God's pleased with you, and um, I'm, I, I just want to let you know that um, well, I'm going to get you hooked up with a man by the name of Peter, and you need to really pay attention to what he's got to say, because this is going to change your life, it's going to save your family, and life is going to be great. Well, as we know, he sends a delegation, gets them ready, go and find this person in Java by the name of Peter and bring him to me. Interesting. Meanwhile, back where, you know, where Peter is staying, and of course, we need to remember that he's there because a great persecution has come upon a church and has driven everything out of Jerusalem. So Peter's at this place, and he's hungry, and somebody's making him lunch, so he decides to go to the rooftop, uh, just maybe have a quick snooze or something like that, and he has a dream, and in this dream, a tablecloth comes down full of creepiness and reptiles and animals, and it really... I mean, he was repulsed and disgusted by it. As a matter of fact, the word... When he says, listen, nothing like this has ever touched my lips, literally what he's saying is, there's never been anything so disgusting as this to touch my lips. Needless to say, God is trying to make something clear to him. Now, I'm glad that Peter joined the dots pretty quickly because the first word to Peter was, get up, kill, and eat. And it's not too long after that that three men show up at his house. That was a joke for those of you who are still into The Walking Dead. But anyhow, Peter joins the dots. He gets the message right. He realizes, well, he realizes God's trying to say something to him. The visitors show up. Surprise, surprise, they converse. The next thing you know, he invites them in. And he shares hospitality with them. 
Now, for us, we would see this as, well, what else is he going to do? I mean, they're, they're, they've, they've traveled a distance. They're, they're probably hungry and tired. First little thing you need to put on your checklist or put on the shelf, that he actually opens up his home to the oppressor, to the person who is representative of everything miserable, hurtful, harmful, punitive, destructive that has come upon Peter's people. He opens up his home to those individuals. Now, they communicate to him that, listen, um, my boss really wants to meet with you and wants to spend time with you. So, make a long story short, Peter goes and visits them, goes back to Caesarea, and um, arrives at this Roman centurion's home. Now, think about this. The moment he arrives, this man falls at his feet as if to worship Peter. And Peter says, oh, dude, we, we don't do this. He gets him up, and uh, interestingly enough, he says, no, I, I just, please be patient with me, but you have to understand something. People like me are not allowed to come to places like this and to hang out with people like you. This is an absolute no-no. It's forbidden. I mean, this is as bad and as dark as it could get. But God showed me something in a dream, in a vision. I've got to change the way I think when I show up at somebody else's home, particularly those whom I think God doesn't want to have anything to do with, who I once thought God considered revulsive and, and off, you know, like terrible, evil, bad. So Peter goes in, meets Cornelius, the whole household, shares the story about Jesus, death, resurrection, vindication, and lo and behold, the Spirit of God falls. Now, you're saying, well, yeah, I know the story. Yeah, the, the Holy Spirit fell on them, and they, you know, boom, they were speaking in tongues. No, but, but <laughs> I love this because God's messing with Peter. Um, his Jewish entourage are astonished. First of all, he doesn't get to finish his message. That, that's, that'll kill any preacher. He doesn't get a chance to call his associates to take out their tambourine and flutes and sing, blow a trumpet in Zion. He doesn't get to tell a heart-stirring story, pray and give an altar call. Altar call. While he's talking, and the Spirit of God falls upon all these people, and I, I could almost picture him looking at his buddies going, what do we do now? I don't know. They're, it happened to them just like us. Well, before you know it, he baptizes them, and he decides to stay in their home. Again, very simple fact. And we would look at that and go, well, big deal. You know, he let them stay at his place. He had to sleep over at their place. You know, like life goes on. 
But like uh, Pastor Gary used to say whenever uh, you would take us to Cuba, you know, mi casa, su casa. You know, my home's your home. So Peter stays with them. It's wonderful. End of story. We think, boy, it doesn't get any better than this. It's just a great story. Let's move on to chapter 11. Well, we're in chapter 11, and all of a sudden, it hits the fan. And instead of there being this celebration of what God has just done with people whom the Jews were absolutely convinced, for the most part, God would never look at, a very small minority of influential, outspoken, law-keeping, goody-two-shoes, Christian Jews say, hey, three strikes, brother. You went to Gentiles, you entered their house, and you can almost see them, their lips quivering, and they're all, can't bring myself to say it. You ate with them. You know, like when you read that, like again, like you, you think, Okay, am I missing something? Is there, is there like, am I supposed to lay hands on chapter 11, the first couple of verses, and then expect a new revelation because eating really means? Okay. So let me just unpack, I think, some of the trees, metaphorically speaking, in this forest that I think are really important when it comes to not just our communion with God, but our community with others. And not just our community with believers, but our community with non-believers. Well, scandalized and criticized by the circumcised. Peter is criticized. To the sensible mind, this would seem absolutely ridiculous, absurd. The bitter irony is that in spite of the fact that such incredible things happen, they're focusing on the fact that Peter went where he should have never went. He stayed where he should have never stayed. And God forbid, he ate non-Jewish food. Now, uncircumcised. We all know, or at least... We, we've kind of been around in Scripture long enough that circumcision was really a big deal for Jewish people. Uh, it was a sign of a covenant with God. He had established this with Abraham. And um, as a matter of fact, back in Acts chapter 7, uh, uh, Stephen talks about this. But if there were certain things that really defined behaviorally Jews apart from, obviously, their allegiance to Torah. It was circumcision, it was their keeping of food laws, and it was their ability to keep Sabbath. Now, the fact that Peter would go into the very home of an uncircumcised Gentile was, well, that, that's it. That, that's strike one. Uh, stay in the house, strike two, and eat their food, strike three. Now, Eating with, I want to. I want to talk a little bit about this, because ultimately today is going to be a day of eating, right? Isn't that a happy thought? That you can dangle that in front of you as you 
listen to me. We're going to be eating. It's okay. It's all good. Hot dogs. Kosher. Halal. Um, why the criticism overeating? You see, there were two terms that became synonymous with eating with other people. Breaking bread, table fellowship. Now, the law of Moses, as laid down in Leviticus 11, was pretty complex. There was a lot of stuff in there of what you can eat and who you can't eat and what crawls and what doesn't crawl. And if it's on its belly, if it's on hind legs, it has joints that, that move below the leg, you can eat that, but you can't eat the thing that flies that looks like an owl. And Oh, my goodness. Like, I mean, you, you, you would probably need a, a degree in, 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 in the study of animals just to figure that one out. But the, here, here's the point. These complex dietary laws were meant to ensure the maximum potential for health for a nomadic people who spent the first 40 years of their existence in the desert. The law was a means to an end. The law was a means to a greater end. Their well-being and obedience to these laws were meant for the good of their health, not their harm, but also... Because these laws were so specific and distinct, these laws created a distinction and a unique identity for the people of Israel that made them quite different from non-Jews, right? We don't eat owls. We do. Well, we're not like you. Good. Go away. I'm not sharing my owl with you. Well, the dietary laws, which made the people of Israel distinct from all other peoples, became a source of their defending their decision to avoid other peoples who didn't embrace these same laws. And ultimately, it became a means of dividing themselves from other peoples. Well, you eat eels, therefore you must be an eel. I don't hang out with people like you or people who chew eels. The bottom line was simply this, is that obeying the dietary laws made you a holy person, so they thought, and therefore pleasing to God and favored by God. But as with all laws and prohibitions, eventually their, their, their obeying the law became like a bad weed so that it just wasn't about the food you were not to eat. It also became about the people who ate the food you were not allowed to eat. And people who ate bad food were bad people. And if you were holy for eating good food, then they were unholy for eating bad food. So then their, their spirituality became much more about avoiding people who ate bad food as it was about avoiding eating bad food. And their spirituality and their piety became incredibly complex and externalized. And you have to understand, this was ingrained in Israel for centuries so much so that if you actually do a study on the, all the kind of additional laws that were brought in, the bylaws and the amendments that were created to protect the laws, that levied punishments and penalties against people even being a certain amount of distance around people who ate bad foods, it would send your head spinning. And God forbid that, that in a moment of, of spiritual absent-mindedness, you actually or accidentally talk to somebody who ate bad food, 
or who was carrying bad food, who had food that hadn't been properly tithed on. It was insane. So any wonder that when these Jews came to faith in Christ, they had to wrestle with what do they do with the law? And doing so was no easy matter. You see, nobody just snaps out of this mindset after being part of this culture for 1,800 years that perpetuated it. As my grandmother used to say to me when I was a young boy, and it took me a long time to, to really get the gist of it, but she said, Mark, you can take a boy out of the gutter, but it's going to be a lot harder to get the gutter out of the boy. Point being is that, yeah, you can physically transplant somebody from a bad environment to a good environment, but the amount of days and weeks and months and years it's going to take to get everything that that bad environment did to this person out of them so they could live like they actually are in a new environment. That's a different story. These Jewish Christians, these circumcised party, still had a lot of baggage to get rid of, and it wasn't easy. Now, Let me just say a little bit about table fellowship in this culture. We're looking at a person who has just shared the gospel with uh, Gentiles. They've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. They've come to faith. And there's a segment of the church that has lost it, ignored the obvious, and are scandalized by his actions and are criticized. I mean, you understand, folks. They are criticizing Peter, the rock, the person chosen by Jesus to be, you know, the, the kind of like the, the leader of the, the, the early church. They're coming after him. Both, both barrels blasting. But what I think sometimes what we fail to realize is in that culture, and this will explain just how far we have drifted from this. Sharing drink and sharing food was often viewed as the greatest kindness one could offer. It was, uh, it was an expression of hospitality. That eating together created a bond of trust. It created the setting for greater intimacy and dialogue. To eat together was your way of saying, I endorse this person. It was a sign of your acceptance, your affirmation, and your approval of this individual. It was saying, this person is my friend. Now, when you're a Jew and you're sitting down and you're eating with your oppressor and your conqueror, in those days, that would have constituted treason. And chances are you would have been murdered for that. You would have been killed by your own people. Because how could you do such a despicable, horrible, treasonous thing? Peter, obviously, summarizes what's happened. He legitimizes what happens to the Gentiles. And I'm not going to, I mean, you know the story. But I, this is what I want to draw to your attention. Think of what Jesus modeled to Peter when it came to 
table manners. Okay, follow me. The first criticism that Peter would have heard, and all this comes from Luke's gospel, right? Luke and Acts. He heard firsthand this criticism from the Pharisees is, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus actually volunteers a little bit later to go to a Roman centurion's house when he's summoned to heal the guy's servant. When Jesus gets invited to a Pharisee's home, a prominent Pharisee, like, you know, one of the, hey, a big kahuna, right? The man, not the guy, the man. A prostitute comes in and starts bawling all over him, kissing his feet, touching him, washing his feet with her hair, and Jesus is soaking it all up. And this is happening while he's eating. Would you feel a little uncomfortable? Later on, Jesus, once again, and although it is not translated in the English by this phrase, literally, he is invited to a Pharisee's home to eat bread on the Sabbath, where apparently there's a man with severe inflammation, kind of looks like the Michelin tire man, and Jesus is so moved by this that in the context of the meal, he heals him, and everybody's upset. Like, dude, you don't do this at supper, and you don't do this on the Sabbath. He's big, he's roly-poly, he'll deal with it. Chapter 15, Peter, once again is with, Peter, with, with Jesus, and he hears the Pharisees complaining, your, your, your rabbi welcomes Right? He embraces and makes room for and accepts in his presence sinners. And, and God forbid, he eats with them. But I never saw so much rigmarole over eating. And then it really gets great because in, in, in the unique story of uh, Zacchaeus, Jesus, before he even gets invited, says, hey, Dude, I'm going to come and stay with you. And everybody's freaking out because they're saying, you are gone to stay at his house? The point I'm trying to say, the point that I'm trying to get at here is that Jesus modeled something very unique for Peter that I think we, we would tend to gloss over until we realize the implications of it and who we open our tables up to and who we exclude from our tables today. Peter modeled, or Jesus modeled something for Peter that he wanted Peter to remember. He wanted all his disciples to remember. Well, I'm, I'm wrapping this up, but probably the most important parts coming up. The circumcised are satisfied. In other words, okay, we get it. We understand. The Holy Spirit who came on us 
whom we believed according to Ezekiel and Joel and Isaiah would be something only for us, the favored people of God, the covenant people of God, that same Holy Spirit who came on us on the day of Pentecost has come on them. They didn't know what to do with that. So sometimes the best thing to do when you don't know what to do is to do what they did. They just became silent and say, well, you know what? Glory be to God. This chapter, which has launched and in a lot of ways been the source of our, um, our sermon series, it's a beautiful summary of the early church. I want you to see something right on the top in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Go down to verse 46. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. I mean, it's beautiful. I mean, there is something happening here around the table that is precious. The rich and the poor. God is doing something, and he's doing it through his Holy Spirit. He's bringing a level of equality. And God forbid that, that you... you I, I know you're going to think when I say this word, but... This is Christian communism, like in, in, in every sense of the healthy word. It's not evil, satanic, humanistic communism. It's the real deal. Now, this is beautiful, but let me tell you something. It was intended to be beautiful so that it could be attractive to the world around and outside of the church. As a matter of fact, when you look at it, it says, they ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. So people read the message of their unity and their meals and their being together and their sharing and their fellowship. And they said, we get, we get the message. We get the message. But when you get to Acts chapter 10 and 11, you realize that as beautiful as this is, it has all become inward. It has become all about the church, what they enjoy, and who they extend and open up their table to. You see, as long as it was Peter, and you can substitute anybody else in there, and Jesus and the Jewish Christians, this, this was a good thing. But you see... Jesus had intentions that went way beyond what you see here on the left. Ultimately, he was thinking on the right. And that's, I mean, that's what the whole book of Acts is about, is getting them from the left over to the right. Now, I'm speeding this up because time's running out. This might flop. And if it does, it does, right? I call this a parable of four tables. This is the table that existed back in the days of Jesus. Some of you may not realize that, but this, this is kind of like a cultural sign of what? This is reserved, reserved seating. 
There's four chairs, and the message is it's us four and no more. And this is the way meals were celebrated among Jews. You have to be like them, look like them, eat like them, act like them to come to this table. And nobody was ever going to get in any other way. Jesus comes along and he does this. Hey, hey, whoa, 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 no, hey, what are you doing? No, no, it's okay, it's okay. You can't do that. They're sinners. She's a prostitute. It's all good. Don't worry about it. And he goes and he has meals with the very people that were forbidden to come to the table. What a beautiful living illustration, right? Well, we know how that all goes and where he ended up after three years of doing this kind of stuff. So eventually, he comes, and we know what the story of the cross is all about, and he says, okay. Your table was closed off to me. I tried to have people come to the table and hang out with them. And look what ended up. So guess what? I'm going to make my own table. And every prostitute, murderer, arrogant, pride, self-righteous, evil, lawkeeper, atheist, bum, is welcome at my table. It's my bread. It's my juice. And there aren't no dietary laws or rules that you have to follow. Everybody's welcome here. Because this is about what I did to make you fit to come to the table. You don't have to dress a certain way. You don't have to wash your hands, metaphorically, spiritually speaking, to come here. I'm the one who washes you. I'm the one who gets you. I'm the one who makes you acceptable to come to this table. Now, when you come here, yeah, remember that I did this for you. But please stop fighting about whether this turns into my blood and this becomes my flesh and if you're guilty of spiritual cannibalism. And please stop. Enough fighting and killing over this. And trust me, read your church history books. There's been enough of it. I just want you to enjoy the meal at my table. Now, the fourth table, if we're not careful, is our table. And the fourth table can really become this, you know? A nice table... No, no reserved seating, so to speak. But it's just, again, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, it's, just, it's us four and no more. Brother, sister. It's just, it's, it's not alcoholic. Good, good, yes, good. It's gluten-free, better yet. Oh, it's, it's just wonderful. I love every moment of this. You see, the truth is, 
is that we have all experienced it and we do it, we perpetuate it because it's, it's who we are. We don't know any better. We're we, we as caught up in this trap as these, right? These people. It's just we've Christianized the same problem. We may not have dietary rules and food rules about who comes to the table, but my goodness, we've got a book full of do's and don'ts and who and can't and what about who comes to our table. And while we're enjoying this, because it's this that brings us to the table, we must always make sure that there's an open chair. And you know what? Sometimes you just got to take your chair and just kind of bring it out a little bit more and let people know that there's an open chair. Now that's, that, that's my conclusion. You can join the dots, you understand. We break bread, literally. We are wrestling continuously with what it means to be missional. And sometimes we just bend over backwards trying to find out new strategic ways of you know getting the gospel out and I am just amazed at how quickly a table can transform individuals a simple invitation to come to your table there is so much communicated when you share a meal with another person it becomes disarming it just becomes a beautiful expression of potential community so, yeah, let's, let's, let's break bread together at the communion table and remember what Jesus did for us. But let's also, when we go home, break bread with our brothers and sisters. Remember the other side of the cross. Extend table fellowship and break bread with, with others who, like the video shows, they just... They come, they go home, they close their door. That's the end of it. Heavenly Father, we thank you today. It's amazing how such a simple staple of life like bread uh, has come to represent so much. Spiritually speaking, we are overwhelmed sometimes we're just puzzled by the the mystical nature of it. On a very basic carnal level, we need food to live. But how many of us, how many of us can think of times when sitting at a table, eating with friends and family, something happens. We can't put our finger on it. There's a joy that is released. There's a sense of well-being. There's a togetherness, the potential for hospitability and welcome and acceptance and affirmation and laughter and storytelling. There's so many good things could happen there. We, we need to learn new table manners with each other. Forgive us for our busyness that 
really interferes with our ability to to break bread with one another. Lord, it's heartbreaking to know that people people notice are running about. But Lord, everybody here, where they live, whether it's an apartment building, condominium, a little house on the corner, street, neighborhood, there are people who come and go and go home and boy, oh boy, the smile may come off once they get through their own door and close it. Can you help us to rediscover to the degree that we're even open to allowing you to, through your Holy Spirit, change us and shape us and form that aspect of our mission? Can you help us to make room at our table? And Pastor Shannon challenged us weeks ago to extend our table. So we're being reminded again Lord, we're so grateful that you have supplied our needs according to your riches and glory. But it's not just about eating to live. I know that we can experience life at the table. So would you help us to extend that table to others? Invite them in. Listen to them make a bond, share conversation, disarm, tear down some walls, some barriers, some misconceptions. Boy, nothing says you're welcome like good food. (laughs) Amen. The Lord dropped the word in my heart as I was preparing this. It's very, very simple. We're going to eat today. We're going to drink. We're going to be merry. This week, the word that came to me was Mark. Eat, drink, be missional. Don't just be merry. Be missional. Open up your table. Invite them in.